Why don't we get started? We've been in the book of Exodus. If you look on the front of your bulletin, uh, you can find a link if you want to use a smart device to find the scripture, or there are Bibles on the table as well. Exodus is the second book of um, the Bible and the second book of what our Jewish friends call the Torah. And we are now, uh, Steve walked through an incredible scene last week uh, in chapter 32 of the Golden Calf Incident. We're going to see, we're going to back up a little bit and see, uh, we're really going to spend the next couple weeks in the uh, Ten Commandments. And we're going to see things that happened beforehand, which shed some amazing light on that golden calf incident. So I'm going to go ahead and read Exodus 20, 1 through 11. Uh, you can read along with me uh, on your own. We're dealing through this out loud. Uh, but you can read along in uh, the Bible or on your own device or on the screen behind me. This is Exodus 20, 1 through 11. And God spoke all these words, saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God and a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to your Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore... The Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I, if you, like I said before, we're going to be in the Ten Commandments the next couple weeks. Very famous scripture that a lot of us are probably familiar with. At least, you know, you know, there's some, some, there's some place in the Old Testament where there's Ten Commandments and they're kind of a big deal, right? Most people, uh, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, may be aware of that. Uh, but I want to start out with a statement related to that that maybe a lot of people would find kind of uh, strange at first. There is freedom that comes from keeping the rules. There is freedom that comes from keeping the rules. There's a freedom in following the guidelines by placing limits on yourself. Indeed, I would actually argue the greatest freedom in your personal life can come when you follow rules at times. Now, not all sorts of rules, of course. <laughs> we don't need to get into whether or not everyone follows the speed limit. Um, it's a flexible 65 in LA, right? Right? Okay. But on a broad scale, uh, many people would find, many modern people, especially here in LA, would find that sort of statement just kind of ludicrous. It just doesn't make much sense, right? We tend to believe that freedom comes from being able to express yourself, right? Living out your true identity, whatever that might be, might be, being able to be the true you, right? This means at a heart level in LA, we tend to believe true freedom comes when we're able to live out all our desires, whatever those desires may be. And to hinder those desires is actually something many people, many of us believe, brings personal harm and actually hinders human flourishing. We tend to believe by definition that 
rules limit us, hinder us, and often keep us from what we really want in life. But I think that's only because of the way we tend to think about certain rules, especially when we get into the spiritual realm, when we think about what God might, may or may not command us to do in laws that are given by Him. Let me give you three quick examples that I think you'll agree with in terms of showing that there is a freedom that comes to following the rules. Actually, we all do it in some way. So think of, I got a picture there of a guy with cap and gown. Think of someone pursuing their master's education or really any form of higher education. If you follow the rules, in a sense, of the hard work that comes with pursuing a master's degree, you got to read a lot, you got to say no to watching lots of Netflix at night because you're reading your whole you know, time you're going through school, you probably have to say no to what you might want to do to hang out with friends and family, to go out and get a drink, go out with coworkers or whatever afterward because you're following the rules of the hard work that it takes to get your master's degree. And the hope of whatever degree you're pursuing, the hope is you get a greater freedom for a greater potential for a job, maybe a higher uh, pay scale than you had before, which would then lead to more opportunities in your life, more ability to have freedom in the future that you would not have if you didn't pursue the hard work of following the rules of getting your master's degree. Does that make sense? Another example, healthy eating, right? We all get that. We're in LA, we need to eat salads like once a day, right? That's what we, what we do. Uh, we can all understand this. If you follow the rules of a healthy, you know, probably not, it changes every once in a while what's healthy, but low carb, low fat diet, we'll say, not too much red meat, right? And if you do that for a lifetime, what greater freedom will that bring you in your life? You say no to every desire you have for a donut down the street and every time. I mean, how many times do you like have a craving that you want something and you have to say no for the greater freedom that a healthy life brings, right? Longer longevity in your life, probably feeling better about yourself. If you, you know, go out and get fast food all the time, you just feel junky. Uh, you may disagree with me. I don't want to cause any uh, uh, discrepancies here. In and out, you got to have that every once in a while, right? Uh, but you get the point, right? You get greater freedom by limiting yourself and maybe all the desires you have that come when you follow the rules of having a healthy life. Or last example, loving parents. You probably all understand this somewhat. No loving parent lets their child do whatever they want, right? A parent is very loving when they say you need to go to bed at a decent hour. Uh, no, you can't touch the stove and even whatever you want. Uh, yes, you do have to do your homework. None of us, when we see a parent doing that, hopefully, none of us think, oh, how awful. You're limiting the potential of their freedom for their lives. What a terrible, unloving parent you are. We all understand that when a parent lovingly sets rules for their kids, they do it because they want the greater freedom that can come from a stable life, from becoming a good adult human being someday, and, you know, on top of not burning your hand on the stove, right? And getting a, going to the hospital and the emergency room uh, and things. I mean, just if you are around little kids or you happen to be a parent of a young child, just imagine letting them do whatever they wanted. I mean, it's just, you, you just it doesn't take long before you go. That would be uh, mass chaos, right? When God gives his people, indeed, when he gives all the people of the world moral rules, if you will, in the spiritual realm, laws, commandments, regulations, or whatever it might be, it's because he loves us. 
It's because he want the, wants the full freedom that may not come immediately to saying no to some desires in the moment, but it's because he wants to bring the longer lasting freedom that will come, our full potential and full personal flourishing and on a societal level, full human flourishing. The question for us is, are we going to be like a five-year-old child who thinks they know better than their parents on how to run their lives and what choices to make? Or are we going to allow ourselves to come under what God says to try and find the greater freedom and the greater joy that comes and the greater blessing for the rest of society? Even when, I mean, there's times like this, right? Even when a five-year-old child doesn't always understand why their parent makes the decision they do, wants to stay up. Why do you make me go to bed? I'm th you, know, you can tell what age we have right now. Our daughter's six. Um, sometimes it's like that with God. We don't always understand why he calls us to obey certain things. But are we going to listen for the greater freedom that is promised? As we enter in to talk about the... Old Testament laws, what's called the Mosaic laws, we need to say a couple things, especially because nowadays, actually, there's lots of talk about this. If you go into culture, especially talks around morality. So you hear today in a spiritual context when morality is talked about, sometimes you hear the Bible invoked, right? Even in secular shows or, or communities, the Mosaic law sometimes or Old Testament regulations uh, get talked about. Uh, when it comes to moral behaviors. Sometimes you hear it in discussions on human sexuality nowadays. Uh, often both sides take something the Mosaic Law might say and then apply it. So some people say, look, the Old Testament says even this back then is not something we should take part in. And then on the other side, if you're more progressive, you might say, look, the Mosaic, they probably don't say Mosaic Law, but they're like, look, the Bible or the Old Testament says you can't eat shellfish and you need to stone uh, you know, someone who's a prostitute, do you really think we shouldn't be able to go, you know, get some lobster and have shrimp? You know, clearly that's ridiculous, blah, blah, blah. We go forward. There's a reason you hear people, I, I uh, love Bill Maher's show on HBO. My wife thinks I'm crazy, but I enjoy the political talk, if you know that show. Uh, but he, he refers to it often. There's a reason secular people, even in the United States, refer to the Old Testament or the Bible or the Mosaic Law, because our country actually has a pretty rich history of Judeo-Christian tradition and morality influencing our worldview. That, of course, has shifted quite a bit, in the, especially the last 50 years or so. But uh, the Ten Commandments has, you know, quite a cornerstone in a lot of places. Even some, uh, you know, Capitol buildings and courtrooms have them posted uh, somewhere there. And so a lot of people, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, may not realize the influence it has had on our culture. But the Ten Commandments, in case you weren't aware, uh, is the most prominent, important part of the Mosaic Law. But the, mo the full Mosaic Law has more than 600 specific commands given to the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. So the Ten Commandments are the most prominent, but there's a lot more in there. And they get really specific at sometimes. You, you go through and you're like, that's an interesting thing to put in there, God, but okay, I guess. But sometimes churches and even political leaders hold the Ten Commandments up as a moral code to follow, right? There's a problem with that. While there's nothing inherently wrong with making uh, your moral standard for any society, in fact, you know, every moral society or country has to choose some moral standard to base their laws and regulations on, 
This list of 10 prominent commandments with 58 chapters of 600 plus commandments that follow, they were not given to all people of earth at all times for everyone. They were not given to every nation around the world for every time. They were given to a specific ancient nation of Israel, given to Moses himself and the nation and the people that would follow uh, him and the descendants to come. Now, if you're a Jew today, like many of our friends here in uh, Studio City, the Ten Commandments might have more of a prominent role in the Mosaic Law. You might tend to follow it, especially if you're on the Orthodox end. Uh, there's still a lot you take uh, very seriously in your life. But most Americans, and I'm guessing most people in this room, are Gentiles or non-Jews. And so it wasn't really given to us specifically. There's another problem. The New Testament pictures Jesus Christ not as canceling out the Mosaic law, but as fulfilling the law perfectly for us, where symbolically the whole nation of Israel, ancient Israel, failed to obey the law, as Steve showed last week. Jesus is shown to perfectly fulfill it. The result of that, you know, and on top of that, the church, the, people, the new people of God, is not made up of one specific nation state right? We don't have a government we can go to. Uh, specifically, it's like, this is the Christian government, and this is our Christian president, or whatever. There's no state law system. We're people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every country, ethnicity, language on earth. And the Holy Spirit is now our guide. So, many of the Mosaic laws are very specific to a nation state. For instance, executing capital punishment on someone that does something wrong. It's required in the Mosaic Law. We don't have that now. They, those, therefore, those laws and regulations get nullified for followers of Jesus today because there's no temple we can go to. There's no priest that we have uh, that the Mosaic Law requires. So the challenge for us when we come to the Ten Commandments and the rest of the Mosaic Law the challenge for us is to see what in the Mosaic Law is affirmed in the New Testament, Jesus and afterwards, what is affirmed post-cross and resurrection, to know where it applies to us today. For the most part, all of the moral and spiritual aspects of the law are affirmed. For instance, don't murder. It's probably a good one. <laughs> God's not like pro-murder, post-Jesus, which, you know, thank God. Uh, <laughs> don't steal. Make God number one in your life. Things like that are reaffirmed over and over and over. But the ceremonial laws, the specificity of how to carry that out, needing to do this many uh, specific sacrifices yourself and your family. You know, you need to go down the street, get a chicken, bring it to the priest, do that. You know, that, we, that, those things are nullified. They no longer apply. And Jesus did other things. Uh, while all the holiness aspects are passed over into the New Testament, where we're still called to be set apart, still called to be different, Jesus said things like, um, no longer are all some foods unclean. He actually, he actually declared all food is now clean. And so he did, by fulfilling it, he did change some things. So you're, you, know, you don't have to not eat lobster, okay? So this is good news today, right? This is shrimp and lobster are okay. Do you see how complex that is? That might have gotten way too deep for you and you're like, well, what's going on? But I say that so you understand, if you are a follower of Jesus, what you have in what you're called to follow is actually much better than even the Mosaic Law with all its specific commandments. And you can avoid silly arguments about shellfish 
and the context of them and things. And so you'll see that evoked in society. And now you, hopefully you might have an answer and go, actually, Jesus fulfilled that. We don't have to do that anymore. Uh, so I say that so you can understand some of the context. It's complex. Some things in theology are easy and, and to understand. Some things are complex and need some nuance. And so that's, we'll, we'll learn more about that as we go through in the next few weeks and things. But I want to share two things today, two main things quickly from our scripture that we can understand about uh, the Ten Commandments. First, God is a loving lawgiver. He is a loving lawgiver. This Redeemer, who now we see is a lawgiver, is a loving one. And he takes pains to show us that before he gives any commandments out, both for his people in the Old Testament and for us today. In chapter 19, God is, read, is readying his people to know what is required of them, to know what it means to have God as their father, to know what it means, what it looks like to be one of his people. He's going to show his character and his standards to them, but notice how he does it. This is chapter 19, starting in verse 3. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called out of, to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my command, covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you're to speak to the people. The Lord tells them first how he rescued them. The phrase about being born on eagle's wings, you see that? You go, oh, that's kind of you know, interesting there. It's meant to communicate a tenderness from God. It's meant to communicate picturing kind of a, a nursing eagle that has little you know, baby eaglets. It's eaglets, right? I don't even know. I just didn't write that down. I think it's eaglets. Uh, and you see a mother eagle bringing them in closely, nurturing them, caring for them binding up on her wings to protect them. That's the image God is evoking and telling his people he is like. He's saying, Israel, this is how I brought you to myself, like a gentle eagle caring for her young. This is how much I care for you. And he communicates to them that he will be, the, they will be his treasured possession out of all the other people on earth. They will be a kingdom of priests, meaning they will have a direct relationship with God from the beginning, or at least that's what was intended. Lastly, immediately before the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, we read it at the beginning, he says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the one that tells you these commands, Israel. This is the one who saved you, the one who parted the waters for you, the one who destroyed all your enemies, the one who freed you from slavery, the one who rescued you, who's provided you food every day, who's provided you water from the rock. This is the one who's now going to tell you, this is what it looks like to live and to follow me. Not the one who's there to go, yep, I rescued you now, and now I'm going to make your life boring and awful and horrible. Here you go. You ready? Here's 50,000 commands. He's saying, I love you. I care for you. I'm tender towards you. I rescued you. I saved you. Now, follow me. And think about this. Doesn't the character of the, just think on a broad scale, doesn't the character of the lawgiver make all the difference? 
The character of the rule giver make all the difference. Think about, you've probably all had a job at some point in your life. Think of a boss you may or may not have had at some time. If you've had a great boss at some point, one you can trust, one who treats all the employees fairly, one who doesn't you know, pick favorites in the workplace, one who's kind, one who uh, you know, is just kind of a good person to you. Doesn't it make all the difference when they ask you to do something, especially when they ask you to do something hard? Think about the other side. If you have a jerk, one who plays favorites, a boss that you know, treats people very differently, uh, is kind of full of himself or full of herself, and you know, you've been maybe defrauded in some way potentially by them, or they've been poor leadership, or they yell at times in the office. Then when they ask you to do something especially hard, doesn't it make it a lot harder <laughs> to, do, <laughs> to do that? The character of the rule giver makes all the difference, right? God is the rule giver. The law that he gives, he's the one that doesn't stand far off. It's not uncaring, arms crossed, just throwing out commands because he feels like it. He's the one that has perfect character, who treats everyone on earth fairly, who's given you every good thing that you have in your life. He's the one that's taken care of you since you were born. And if you're a follower of Jesus and you've trusted him in your life, he's the one that's brought you near to him like a mother eagle, tenderly calling you his own, making you his son or daughter, bringing you into his family, cleaning you off with his forgiveness, making you his treasured possession, and loving you. That's the one who calls you to live differently. That's the one who calls us to live holy. Not so your life is boring. Not so you miss out on all the fun things that other people get to do. But so as you have maximum freedom to be all you were meant to be, and so that your life flourishes and others around you know his goodness as well as a result. That's what God's commands mean to you today. That phrase, treasured possession, is really a beautiful one. And we probably, at Anthology even, I don't think it's impossible to emphasize this enough. But, but that relationship, that reality is not just true for the people of Israel then. Do you realize you are spoken of as a treasured possession of God as well? And even more so because of what Christ has done. That is more true of you than it was for the people of Israel. Because you're his beloved son or daughter, the scriptures actually say God rejoices over you. He does not just tolerate you and go, oh, geez, DJ, Pfft. all right, I guess I'll love you today. But I saw what you did last night, and boy, you are, you're a mess. <laughs> but he rejoices over us. He mourns when we turn aside and do things we should not do, but he loves us. He's tender with us. All the danger we would face from him, all the anger and wrath towards sin that he has, is removed because of what Jesus did for us. So now all we get is his love, his rejoicing, his pleasure. And that's the one that commands you to live differently. You're his treasured possession. Isn't that, I mean, you could spend forever thinking about that, right? And we will, actually. The character of the lawgiver makes all the difference, and he is the best lawgiver there is. Last thing that the Ten Commandments show us here 
is the most important thing about us. We're going to see this week, we're just taking a look really at the four, first four commandments, which are all about God and our relationship to him. The last six are all about how we relate to other people. Love God, love people is a pretty simple way to sum up the Ten Commandments. But the thing that the first commands show us about the Ten Commandments, what they teach us is that the most important thing about us may not be something that we are familiar with. And it's actually, I would say, the Ten Commandments are one thing that does apply universally. And it's saying to every person on earth, the most important thing about you, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, the most important thing about you is not your job. Most important thing about you is not what you do. It's not whether you homeschool or you send your kids to a public school. It's not about your community involvement. It's not about your volunteering you do. The most important thing about you is not about how much money you earn or don't earn. It's not about how big your house is, how about what kind of car you have. It's not about what you leave behind to others that come. The most important thing about you is not who you vote for. It's not what political party you're a part of. It's not the fun things you do or don't get to do. The first four commandments are telling us the most important thing about us is what or rather who we worship. We have to say this again and again, right? We have to tell ourselves this again and again because everywhere we go, especially in LA, everywhere we go, we're being told something else is what makes you most, is the most important thing in your life. What you have, how good you look, whether you're hipster enough or not, whether your jeans are skinny enough or not, what kind of job you have, what kind of house you have, how good your kids behave or don't behave, whatever it might be, what political party, you are a part of or vote for, God is the one who comes in to tell us again and again. And we need to remind ourselves again and again, the most important thing about you is not those things. Those are all lies. And so the first two commandments start like this. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. If you were here last week, you might already be going, well, that didn't take long <laughs> for them to mess that up. But what's going on here, Martin Luther, if you're familiar with him, not the uh, civil rights leader, but the reformer lived 500 years before the uh, other Martin Luther. But he was a famous reformer um, in the 1500s. And he summed up the Ten Commandments like this. He said, you never disobey commandments three through 10 without breaking one of the first two. You never disobey commandments three through 10, murder, stealing, lying, uh, dishonoring your parents, whatever. You never break those without first breaking one of the first two. And what he meant by that was no one hates, hurts, or in the worst part, murders someone unless your object of worship has become something other than God in your heart at a heart level. You hate or hurt someone or you take revenge on them because you've taken yourself to be the place of God. You've taken vengeance and revenge into your own hands instead of leaving it to him. You become your own standard of right and wrong. Or you lie when your reputation or something else you want more than the truth becomes your true object of worship, becomes your idol. We lust or commit adultery, another version of that. We lust in our hearts and in action when the pleasure of sex or the danger of breaking our commitments become the object of our worship instead of God. Do you see that? We'll get into this more next week, and I'm sure Steve did last week. 
We never break the other commandments unless we first break the first two. Breaking commandments one and two is about making your job, your looks, your kids, your political party, your stuff, or any combination of those your true object of worship at a heart level rather than God. And by the Lord telling his people here in ancient Israel and us today, these are the first two commandments. He's telling us in love that doing anything else, making anything else your ultimate object of worship in your life will ruin you, will ruin those you love, will ultimately ruin society on a greater level, and will, in the end, ruin you for eternity. Commandments 3 and 4 are about how your worship looks. And so the third one is, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. And the fourth one is, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. We could do talks, especially on the Sabbath one. We could spend whole messages. And we will at some point in the future. Um, this is not the time, uh, because it takes a long time to work through some of these things. But let's look, taking the Lord's name, uh, in vain. What does that mean? Well, if God is your deepest object of worship, your highest treasure, then the way we say his name, whether it's God, whether we say Jesus, Jesus Christ, whatever it might be, if we say it in a crass or a vain way, it shows, it reveals in our hearts that at some level we've lost what it really means to treasure and value him and worship him. We should speak of him with the highest and deepest reverence with the most care and love in our hearts. And we'll speak of him to each other like that. You know, I mean, it doesn't take long to watch any sort of media uh, before you see Jesus a lot of times is an epithet or at the worst, a curse word at <laughs> some things. That should be different with us. It should be different with followers of Jesus who know him and trust him. One day, the scriptures say, every knee is going to bow to him. Everyone will call him King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Everyone will see the true uh, worthy of worship person that he is and God he is. And so we should speak of him uh, differently when we talk about him. Last one, the Sabbath. This one's a little more nuanced and actually the New Testament and Old Testament differences between it are actually significant and there's a lot of different views on what that means. But at a heart level, this is probably not too hard to see. Resting... Having a day to focus on God, focus on your family, care for one another, uh, shows what you worship at a heart level. And not doing that reveals that as well. It's, it's no secret our society makes an idol of work, right? You probably don't have to be around too much longer to see that. 80 plus work hours are normal in some places. Having to answer your email, being expected to answer your email 24-7 is becoming like a real, if not become a real thing, it is a real thing. When you're expected to work weekends uh, more than uh, just uh, five days a week, we can see something has gone wrong at a level. Often our culture believes your worth and your value is found in what you do for work and how much you do of it. Jesus changed the rigid, rigid requirements of the Sabbath, and the first Christians started worshiping, observing the Sabbath on Sunday, which is why, hello, why we meet today uh, on Sunday. But that changed pretty quickly. They started celebrating and meeting on Sunday, not long after the resurrection. For us today, it should mean we seek to fight in our hearts the tendency to work nonstop, the tendency we might have to find our value in our work. It means we will seek to find time to enjoy God, to enjoy friends and family, 
together to rest. And we'll try to do that uh, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, and on a yearly basis. We'll do a whole nother Sabbath talk sometime in the future because there's too much to say. But it means at a heart level we seek to fight uh, the tendency we might have to make work uh, our everything. Let me close with this. Like I said before, if you were here last week, so last week, uh, Steve walks over the, goes over the story of the uh, golden calf. So just 12 chapters after this. Uh, most of those chapters are filled with lots of the commandments. Here's how you're supposed to worship God. Here's more, some of the more uh, rules that are laid out. And then it gets to chapter 32 you looked at last week. So it took, it took 12 chapters. Okay, first two commandments, no other gods and don't make idols. And there, <laughs> Moses is up on the mountain and they're going, man, this guy Moses is taking a while. Aaron, why don't you make us another God? Would you do that real quickly? And he goes, sure. And he, you know, takes all, give me all your gold. And they take all the gold and they melt it down. And all of a sudden they got a, you know, gold uh, cow. And they're like, that's our God. Yay. And it's like, dude, 12 chapters before, like number two, number two, like really important. No other gods. Don't make an idol. And they're like, we, you know, they just go right on, uh, right on to it. Didn't take long. Uh, at all. It's tragic, really. It's, it's, it's funny when we look at it in context, but it's tragic because it reflects what's taking place in all our hearts. If the people that had visibly seen God rescue them, seen the blood put over their doors and the angel of death pass over in the Passover, seen the waters parted and they walk through it and seen this huge cloud of fire by night and, you know, huge cloud by day. He's there with them, present. And, you know, Moses just walks up the hill and he's talking with God for a while. And, you know, lightning, whatever's going on up there with God's presence. They can look up at the mountain and go, God's right there. He's talking to Moses. If those people so easily turned away from God, made other objects of worship, uh, idols in their hearts, then we better hope the lawgiver is a forgiver of lawbreakers. Or we're in big trouble. In fact, the New Testament, much of the New Testament after Jesus has risen, uh, died and risen from the dead, much of the writers of the New Testament said the whole purpose of the law is we look back on it. Why did God, what, 600 commands, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot of commands. What's going on there? Why did he do that? Much of the reason is to show we were never capable of fulfilling that. The problem was not the laws that were given. The problem is that we're lawbreakers at our heart. The problem is not the Ten Commandments themselves. The problem is we're commandment breakers all the time. We find other things and we go, ooh, golden calf, <laughs> so quickly. So if the lawgiver is not a forgiver of lawbreakers. We're in big trouble. But here's what God said. In fact, you can see this in the Old Testament. The whole sacrificial system was given to say, God saying, I know you're not going to fulfill this. Here is a sacrifice for you to pay for what you've done. But clearly, they have to go after a while. That ain't going to do it. Some animal isn't going to do it. So the New Testament comes along. Jesus comes, dies, and rises from the dead. And here's what it says. It says, the law was given to show us our true need so that one day someone could come and fulfill it. This is what Romans 10, uh, verse 4 says. This is the Apostle Paul. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
Jesus is the end of the Mosaic law and all its commandments bearing on us having to fulfill them because he came and fulfilled it for us. And when you turn and trust Jesus, or if you've already done that in the past, he gives you his full righteousness as a gift. So now the burden of having to fulfill all that law is removed from you and you are forgiven. The law giver became the law keeper for us, the lawbreakers. Now, when you're called to be, be holy, when you're called to root out other idols in your heart, when you're called to, to follow God, to make a difference, to worship him, to keep the Sabbath, to not make work your idol, to not take his name in vain, whatever it might be, and all the things we'll see next week, you don't do it because you go, if I don't obey him, something bad is going to happen. Now you do it because you've been given righteousness. You've been changed already. You are righteous. You are his treasured possession. You are already loved. And now you obey because you have the one that's the best one in the world. You have the father that's more loving than anyone else. You see his laws now not as burdensome, but as something as a loving father gives to you because he cares for you. You see that he's the best lawgiver there is. He is tender and good, and you want to follow him. Do you see the difference there? It makes all the difference. If you're obeying because you have to, because you're afraid, because if I don't, he's going to strike down lightning, gone forever, or obeying because of how good he is. I'm already made righteous. I'm already loved, and I just want to please the one who's done so much. That's who we have. Let me pray. Father, it, it, the book of Exodus is most likely 3,000 years uh, old, more or less, uh, give or take. It is tough to figure out what does that mean for people in 2016. Um, but Lord, when we take a look at it, when we see the things we might make idols, the things in our heart that rise to level of our object of worship, we see we're not really that different in the end. But we are amazed, we are stunned that you call us our, your treasured possession. That you gave that whole law so that we could see one time, yeah, no one did it. And we'll see the rest of the Old Testament is, nope, that guy failed, that guy failed, that girl failed, that person again and again and again until one day you showed up and you did it for us, and he did it perfectly. And now you don't say, get your act together, or else. You say, look what I've done for you. Look how I've loved you. Look how I've made you righteous. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now it's just about faith and trust. Lord, help us to believe you. Help us to trust you. Anyone in here that is not a follower of you, I pray this will be the first day they believe and they put their trust in you. It's as simple in their hearts of saying, I need you, Jesus. I want to follow you. God, teach us now to obey out of the joy of what you've done and who you are, not out of a sense of desperation or trying to make ourselves righteous. Use us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.